building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. Just before we get into today's episode, we'd like to invite you to subscribe to our weekly devotional group. Just text the two words, Promise Keepers, to 31996. Every week you'll receive a challenging devotional that will inspire you to put your faith into action in the real world. Again, text Promise Keepers to 31996. And now, here's today's show. Yeah, so Mark McLean, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ken. It's great to be here. And I'm going to do a longer intro than I normally do on these because this is going to be an interesting conversation. And so part of what we want to do is teach people to think critically because I think there's a big tribalism in the church today, which is really dividing us. And one of those things is around money, meaning there's a, a very big backlash against wealthy pastors, televangelists, you know, the guy with the church and the three private jets. And then therefore, people tend to go all the way the other way to, well, all money's bad and they have a poverty mindset. And what we want to do is think critically through all those things. So you're a guy, started off lower middle class, made yourself incredibly successful. You've been incredibly generous to the kingdom of God. And so we're going to talk about three things. First, you know, how you deal with being a wealthy Christian, how you deal with being a big giver, but being a wise giver. And then lastly, I think what a lot of guys are going to hear is, how'd you get here? How did you go from being lower middle class, Point Loma College, to uh, uh, incredible success? So why don't we start off, tell us about your book and the awesome title of your book. (laughs) Yeah, I guess I I just made it clear to Ken, I started a book here recently, I wrote a book recently. Uh, The book is called uh, Joy and Success at Work, Building Organizations That Don't Suck. The life out of people. Appropriate pause there. <laughs> and um, really what the book is about is sort of how to build a successful organization at some level, teamwork and products, and how do you think about taking products to market? I'm in, I'm in the tech field. But also how, a bit of what does it mean to lead yourself well through that process? As you said, Ken, I, I'm nearing 60. Let's round it at that for now. And um, I know a lot of guys who – and gals, mostly guys – who have had incredible – worldly success, built very, very substantial fortunes or successful companies, but their lives are kind of a train wreck, right? I like to say you don't want to end up that single uh, guy after his fourth divorce with kids in rehab in the 15,000-square-foot home living by yourself. That is not success. Um, but that's where a lot of stories end up um, because we only see the business side that hits Fortune and Forbes. We don't hear the rest of that story. And so I think uh, part of what I try to convey in the book and what I try to convey to the young people I have the opportunity to spend time with is to say, hey, look, you want to kind of keep both these things in alignment, right? If God's gifted you to be a businessman, be a great businessman or woman, but do so in a way that you don't look back with regret at the at the train wreck of your personal life. And that's just far too common a story. And knowing you well, you've done all those things. I mean, you've got three married kids, six grandkids, happy marriage, very successful business. And um, like most Southern Californians, you've relocated to Austin. <laughs> Yes, so it is a piece of California hidden in Texas. Yes, we and, we are, and we are trying to make sure the funnel is, pushes them from Colorado Springs to Austin. You guys take them. We've had it. We have enough. We send them up to you for the winter, but they generally come back. <laughs> <laughs> so, so so let's talk about did you do you struggle with some of that you know, as you become more and more successful, way more than you ever thought you would? Way God more. has blessed you and blessed you. Is, is there uh, a struggle there? And you know, how do I deal with this? How do I properly give this money away and wisely give this money away? What is my responsibility as someone who always thought I was going to be some middle-class guy and suddenly somebody that has private jet money, even though you don't have a private jet? <laughs> yes. Thanks for clarifying that. I'd be in trouble if you didn't. Um, I see you on Southwest Airlines. I know. Though. I got my own special seat, though. <laughs> my plaque, my name. Um, no, I think at the end of the day, um, you, you hinted at something earlier. I love to quote this to people. I'm like, I grew up in a tradition in the faith where they left off the part of that where it says the love of money is the root of all evil, and they just left off the love of part, right. and they just kind of viewed money was the root of all evil. And I think as I as I started to um, get my theology straight as a as a, an adult, right? I, I was very blessed to grow up in a very strong Christian home, but like everyone, I had to. I like the phrase "God has no grandchildren," right? Like I had to learn to adopt my faith for myself. And one of the things I really began to understand about money was it's just a tool. Like so many things, it's a tool. It, it can be used for good or for evil. It happens to be one of the most important tools, uh, 
because as, as I read in The Treasure Principle, a really good book by Randy Elkhorn um, years ago, you know, when God or Jesus um, answered questions often about what, a, what, a, what do you think about how people should live their lives of faith, he often answered with how they should deal with money. It's really interesting mm-hmm. to find that. Like, here, how should I live? Well, you should not cheat people. How should I live? You should give carefully. It's like, huh. He did, they didn't ask that, but that's what he answered. And so I think it's, a, it's, a, I think it's the ultimate barometer in some ways of our faith. Like, if, you're, if you don't deal with money well, there's probably other things wrong with your theology. So I, I've come to believe that it's an important tool. We're ultimately stewards. That's the, the, the core of my theology about money is we're stewards. We don't own anything, right? But we're given an amount of wealth to manage. And sometimes it's more than we expect or less. And sometimes we have a lot for a period and less and more later. It just, we don't know what we're going to do. So what we're called to do is manage what we're given at any point in time with faith and to trust God with it. And so I've tried to have that attitude about it. Um, as you pointed out, we've had <laughs> an amazingly successful run with this second. I, I founded one company and it went well and we sold it and I made uh, some nice money there. And we started this company, SailPoint, about 15 years ago and I thought it would be the sequel. <laughs> and it's been a very different story going public and it's just a very interesting journey. I, I feel like I'm a spectator in my own story. Most of the time I'm like, this is fascinating. I wonder what God's going to do next year. Um, so I just, I feel like that's how I'm watching it unfold. But I, I guess, yeah, sorry, wandered a little from your question. I think that theology of money and how you think about money really does spill over into a lot of other aspects of your life in terms of how you think about God. And what do you say to, I mean, a lot of people listen to this that don't have any money. And, you know, what I've always said is money is freedom and debt is bondage. And if you're not a materialistic person, if you're not trying to be the one with the fancy car and, all, and the best house and all that stuff, money just brings freedom of not having to worry about stuff. And I remember I brought a, a pastor skiing who you know, didn't have a lot of money, and I wasn't thinking about it. We went skiing, and then we went to Costco to get stuff, and I'm just throwing stuff in the cart as we're walking along. And he had a weird look on his face, and I said, what, what's wrong with you? He goes, I've just never been with somebody who doesn't have to look at the price tag. You're just grabbing stuff, whatever you want, and throwing it in the car. I didn't think about it, right? Funny. Money is freedom. To but you were at Costco. I mean, to keep it in perspective, I think that's an important <laughs> part of the story. But okay, then. <laughs> but it is, you know, it, it is freedom. And so, what what do you say to guys that don't have the money? They're, they're not even in a situation. Every day is a grind. Every week, they they need their paycheck to make their bills. They're wondering how they're going to put their kids through college. And reminding them all that you've been there. It's not like you were raised with a with a silver spoon. No, I like to say I, I uh, never never worried about where the next meal was coming from, but I also never had new stuff, <laughs> right? Like, hey, you hand me down bikes and hand me down clothes, and you know, but we always had plenty to eat and a place to sleep. I had my own room until I was eleven months old when my first brother showed up, and again my sophomore year of college. That was the next time I had my own room. Nice. Um, Wait a minute, you got your own room? It's the sophomore in college. I was an RA. I cheated. Ah. <laughs> uh, hey, you know, do what you got to do to get your own room. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I look, I, here's a thought for you. You said a word, and, I've, and I poke at this word sometimes with people for fun. So we use the word materialism a lot. And I think all of us go naturally to um, people with a lot of money. We think, oh, they're materialistic because they, they're, they're chasing things. There's another form of materialism that I think is incredibly common, which is just a fascination with material things. I know people who don't have much at all who are very materialistic. And in some ways, it's what you described. They're very focused on this paycheck, getting to buy the next thing I want, getting a ticket to the thing. I mean, you and I both know people who will spend a month's salary to go to a pro football game. Mm-hmm. That is poor stewardship <laughs> in my book, right? Like now maybe it's an every so often treat, but it's like materialism is just a fascination with the material and that God says this isn't the permanent place, so don't get fascinated with that material stuff, right? So I think back to those guys that are, are wondering about that, I think you just go right to, to the scripture and what does he say? He says, you know, if you're faithful in a little, I'll give you more to manage. I think if you don't have a lot to manage, be faithful with what you're being given to manage and God may in fact give you more to manage. That's kind of my story. I think we were, I got a good job out of school. I worked for IBM, so I wasn't like, you know, barely making it. We could we could afford some nice stuff because IBM was a good corporate, you know, citizen that paid its employees well, but I wasn't going to get wealthy at IBM. But early on, we just decided to have that stewardship mindset, to be disciplined about our giving, to try to be generous above the discipline we'd already planned for. And, and I just kind of feel like God's just poured more into us to manage because I think we were faithful to manage a little. Um, that isn't a guarantee. Let me be super clear. <laughs> Prosperity gospel X, no. Um, like 
I, I don't think you always get more to manage when you manage well, but quite often that principle holds true, that if you're faithful, God says, hey, I think I can trust you with some more. It isn't always financial, by the way. I think sometimes sure. he trusts people with more responsibility, more an influence and authority. But I think either way, when we're faithful as stewards of whatever we've been given, God says, I can trust this person. I can give them more to manage on my on my behalf. That's a really interesting point you're making. I mean, God blesses us within our gift our giftings, right? And so some people are not gifted in that way. Some people are gifted in a multitude of ways. But you think about the blessings that come from having your health, having a family who loves you, having a good marriage. Um, we, we, we so often take for granted things until we don't have them anymore. But I, I do want to remind people, God will bless you when you follow him, but it may not be in how you think, right. but it's all going to be awesome because you'll realize at the end, when you're really following the Lord, those blessings will come where you need them to be, and uh, I can just I can just say I, I have found that the the thousand dollar night hotel really isn't that much better than the hundred and fifty dollar night hotel. You know, the, the towels are a little nicer, but at some point there is a a, a return on investment that ain't happening. There, it's just kind of silly money, and chasing that wealth is just not worth it. It really isn't. There's a fairly low number of millions of dollars. And I know business people think in terms of millions of dollars, a handful get to billions, but really not many. And and I've, I've sometimes challenged people like, you think you want a lot of money? Let me throw a number at you, like $50 million. Try to spend it. I just kind of throw that at people sometimes. Like, what do you want to do? How many, what do you want? Five, five million dollar houses? You're halfway done. You know, you want a jet? You shoot up another 10 to 15, maybe. You can't even spend 50 without getting stupid. <laughs> and you probably were stupid far before you got to 50. In other words, we're so used to having these billionaires in our culture now. I mean, I can't even conceive of a billion dollars as an individual human, right? Because you can't spend that <laughs> on anything rational. That's why people go buy things like islands and super yachts for themselves, which is kind of insane when you think about it. And so get back to when you're not thinking about billions or hundreds of millions or tens of millions or even millions back when like I was, to me, it's about zeros, right? When you get into the corporate world, it's sort of like you do a startup and maybe on you're in a corporate, you're always managing a set of stuff. It's just how many zeros are there after the significant digits? <laughs> you know, at one point in my career, I was managing a hundred million dollar budget. Then I was down to managing a million dollars budget. Now back to a multi-hundred million dollar budget in our company, right? Well, it's just a set of zeros, really. It's like a game. And so at some level, it's like God says, here, I'm going to give you some stuff to manage. No matter who we are, in the big scheme of God's history, we're irrelevant. That's how I, you know, we really are. Like, doesn't mean we're insignificant. It means we're irrelevant, right? Like, my life in the scope of human history is not going to make a dent in the scope of human history, but that's not what God, that's not how God keeps score. Right. So I think in that sense, he says, be faithful. And, and maybe I said that too flipply. Maybe we all make a difference we can never understand or see because it happens long after we're gone. Right. I, I like to talk about who was Billy Graham's Sunday school teacher. Right. Like, you know, sometimes you make a massive difference that you don't even live to see. Right. And so all that I think is about this money thing is, is our culture so feeds this desire to have more. These famous quotes that go all the way back to Rockefeller and up to Barksdale, uh, who helped found Netscape, like when asked these super wealthy people, how much do you need? And their answer was always a little bit more. I'm like, what are you talking about? For what? You know, so I think I think we buy into that lie in our culture and the Christians with wealth can get dangerously close to that. Like, well, I'm, I just think if I just had this, I'd be, I mean, I'm not really spending a lot, you know, on that, this thing. I think we have to be really guarded there. It's not our stuff, right? We're not, we're not spending our own money. And if we lose sight of that, we're going to, we're going to get off track with what God's calling us to do. You know, you think about it, most of the people who changed the world weren't wealthy or they didn't do it through their wealth. I mean, Abraham Lincoln and, and Martin Luther King and Martin Luther and John Calvin, and you can go all the way down the line. None of them had even the only wealthy guy I can think of that changed the world was George Washington, but it wasn't because of his wealth. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that dude could have taken off to his island in Barbados at any time he wanted and said, the heck with y'all. Instead, he stayed and fought and gave his life. But um, it's not money that changes the world. But the problem is that we in America have swallowed this idea that the goal in life is to make yourself as comfortable as possible. I always say that we 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 at, we live our lives as if the goal is to get to death as comfortably as possible, right? And so that's where it, once you're on that pursuit, then you can you're never done trying to get enough stuff to be comfortable enough. Really, it's just our way to try to live without God. Yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. It's another flavor of a godless, back to materialism, right? It's another flavor of a godless existence to say, how can I make sure I've got everything taken care of just in case, <laughs> whatever that means, right? And I think, you know, an adventure is much more to say, well, what, why don't I try to be unexpectedly generous and give more than I think I really should or can afford and then see how God's going to solve that problem for me. That, that's a different way to live. I, I can't claim I'm all the way there, uh, but there's definitely there's definitely folks who are aggressive about how they think about managing steward uh, stewarding God's resources for the kingdom, and yet don't seem to worry that much about what that means for them personally. And we all look at those people like, wow, that's amazing. How do you do that? And I think they would say, I'm I'm just doing what what the scripture says. I'm not really doing anything amazing, am I? So, so talk about generosity. I mean, that the reason I wanted to ask you here is you're a client of Waterstone, so mm -hmm. I get I get a front seat as to your giving, whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah, I know. Talk on that reporting <laughs> stuff. Next time I ask you for money for Promise Keepers and you tell me you don't have any, I'm like, uh, actually, Mark, I'm looking at your account here. <laughs> I just appreciate that you ask and just don't deduct it out of my account. That's so thoughtful of you to do that. Yeah, well, you know, I like I'm not, that's how I roll. <laughs> Because um, we're so hip. I, oh, I tell people role. before I steal from them. It's, uh, you know, it's a very godly thing to yes. do, to, to tell them first. Yes. So, you know, one of the things I'm really big on, there's a lot of people who are generous, but they're not generous wisely. And mm -hmm. um, we get a front seat to that, too, to seeing people who give, not necessarily out of the right heart, because mm -hmm. generosity is huge. Mm -hmm. But being wise about to whom you give is, I think, more important. So we see lots of Christians giving to groups that they don't realize stand for abortion, um, stand for all kinds of godlessness or anti-Israel. They don't even know. How do you educate yourself? How do you make sure that you're not just giving to the Lord, but you're really giving to the Lord and not just some charity? Yeah, it's a hard, um, it's a hard question because I think the truth is I try to be diligent, but I'm probably never as diligent as I could be. It sounds odd to say, <laughs> but one of the the burdens that comes from having more wealth to manage on God's behalf than you expected is there's actually a burden there. Like I want to be faithful. To, to manage these resources. And if, and if I'm slipshod with that, I'm not going to be doing what I was called to do there, am I? And so I think there's a, there's a, by, by the way, I'll, I'll, the, the word generosity, I, I, I recognize how powerful it is. And I also struggle with it because it always kind of assumes that I'm the owner and I'm being generous to give what I have. It's like, but wait, it's not yours. I mean, you just got to come back to that fundamental principle is it's not yours. You're managing resources for the true owner. And so, I don't know that we should commend people so much for being generous as for being good stewards. I'd love for us to shift our thinking and our mindset because I think that 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 so many Christians are still, quote, proud of the fact that even though they're wealthy, they're still giving 10%. And I'm like, wow, I don't think you should be that proud of that. <laughs> you know, like I, 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 I love at some level what Gates and, and um, Berkshire Hathaway, what's his name, uh, famous guy, um, Who's the richest guy in the world? Buffett, thank you. Warren Buffett. Um, you know, like they did this thing to give away half their wealth. I'm like, that's great, except it probably should have been 95%, right? I mean, what do they need even 5% of billions of dollars for? So there's a little bit of if it's if it's if it's not yours to begin with, why should you be proud of how much of it you gave? I think I think the right mental framework for those of us that God starts to give more resources to is what do I think in good conscience God's calling me to live on? And it's probably low, far, far lower than I think I could live on based on my now peer group. <laughs> to your point about it, I could have a jet, but I don't. I think it's like, well, what do I feel like God in good conscience is telling me I should live on? What is reasonable to care for my children? And we could have a whole second conversation about screwing kids up with inheritance, but we probably don't have time for that. And then lastly, okay, everything else. It's not lastly, but but if you think that way, it turns out the remainder is usually way more than 10%, probably more like uh, 80, 90% of, of wealthy people's giving or uh, resources, therefore are tagged for giving because you really don't need that much to live on and to leave your kids if you really have a lot. <laughs> and so cordon that off and say, wow, all this can be for the kingdom. Wow, that's a lot of resources. Now we're back to your question. How do I manage those resources effectively and give carefully? And I think, frankly, it comes with working like your folks and and some of the Christian wealth uh, folks. We work with a group called Paradigm that I, I'm really uh, pleased with. And, you know, they, they help you kind of think through stewarding what because again I'm a tech entrepreneur I built a tech company I'm not a financial manager I one of my other pet peeves we're on pet peeves today is wealthy people that all of a sudden think they're smart at managing money it's like no no you made your money doing something unless you are a financial manager why do you think all of a sudden you're good at managing money it's not your thing right I build tech company I don't know how to manage money so I'm gonna find smart 
godly people to surround myself with that can help me think about how to manage that money and then help me channel it to the right kinds of resources. And, you know, I think that on the where to give and how to give, Ken, I, you know, I heard somebody once say, and I thought it was really good counsel to a group of Christians that could give more resources. They said, look, there's a ton of people that are going to give to these great causes, Red Cross and the Humane Society. Like, but only Christians are going to give to the Christian causes. So maybe we should direct the bulk, if not all, of our giving to these causes that advance the kingdom, that spread the gospel, help the poor very, very directly in the name of Christ, those kinds of things. And so it's just very easy for me to think about channeling the great majority of my giving toward things that are explicitly oriented toward God, God-ordained um, causes. I think the other thing I feel, and I'm different in this way from others who maybe come into family, multi-generational wealth, I'm more of an entrepreneur. I kind of like to support entrepreneurial things. The trick sometimes, as in all entrepreneurship, those things are not proven. <laughs> so sometimes you invest in something and it may not go as well as you had hoped, even in a nonprofit or a, a ministry type of context. So I think just that idea of giving toward things that God calls you to give to and trusting that he's going to drive those resources to accomplish his purposes, but always with that mindset of being cautious to not, to not um, further the causes that are not in God's interests. I heard an interview with Mark Cuban early on in my career, which really helped me a lot. And it's what you're talking about. Someone said, you know, after the 99 tech bubble burst or 2000, whatever that was, um, you, so many tech billionaires went bankrupt, but you, Mark, didn't go bankrupt. Why? And Mark said, because I realized that what I knew was tech and I didn't know anything else. And all these guys that make money, they think, well, if I made money there, I must be a genius at everything else. And... It's the same thing I learned. I, you know, I made my money in commercial real estate. I know real estate. I don't know anything about the stock market. Yep. I don't know anything about horse racing or whatever mm. else. You <laughs> I know real estate. So that's yeah, that's what I invested. And in. you're you're talking about that same. Martin Luther said back in the 1500s that when a man's in his 20s, he wants women. When he's in his 30s, he wants money. And when he's in his 40s, he wants power. And you know. Pretty much people didn't live past their 40s back then, so they didn't have to keep going. <laughs> we could just I thought that thing that was going to peak and then come yeah. back down the other side or something. I don't know. But, you know, you talk about that money, and when you get into the billions, it's really not about money because you you can't spend it. It's about power. It's about power. Yeah. No, I, and, and I think that's what happens with people with money is they start to assume it implies power. Um, and you see that in our culture. And I guess the thing that Martin Luther never foresaw that we live with now is the cult of celebrity, right? Mm, I think right. this idea that someday I'll learn why so many people care about the Kardashians. I still haven't quite figured it out um, because they're kind of famous for being famous, as I understand it, right? Like, I'm sorry, what did they actually accomplish? I missed it. So that idea that that we've become a kind of a celebrity-obsessed culture and a power-obsessed culture. And, and again, those things just don't align with Jesus very well at all. <laughs> um, could have been a big celebrity, wasn't, could have had tons of power, didn't choose to exercise it. So I think if that's our model, then why would we think it's okay to pursue you know, those things? I was going to take this in a critical direction, which I'm still going to. And, and you just gave me the opening to take it to celebrity pastors. Sorry, I'm just not very pastors. Oh, Celebrity pastors. <laughs> Let's oh, take it in big step. trouble here fast. Let's take it instead a different direction. And you, you went to a Christian school, and I'll leave it to you whether you want to, want to, whether you want to mention it. Okay. One of the things I see is a lot of these Christian schools are not teaching the Word of God anymore. And their alums are giving them tons of money. There's one Christian school that I know of, a small Christian school. They've got a $500 million endowment. And I've had people there tell me they don't even teach Christ in the chapel anymore. And their alums don't even know it. it is a guy who's in that camp that can be a big alum giver to your Christian school. How do you, how do you feel about that? What is your thought towards a lot of wealthy Christians are giving money to give bad educations uh, to people? Yeah, um, I, I guess I, I don't mind naming it because it's out in the public domain. I went to Point Loma, which is now Point Loma Nazarene University. It was Point Loma College when I went there in San Diego. I and, it was Point Loma Surf School. Yeah, so, you, yeah, you can get your surfing degree there for sure, although I was not a surfer, sadly. That's maybe why I actually did okay in school. <laughs> I think, you know, it's a tricky topic because to your point— so, well, and, and this is sort of Christian institutions. We could talk about hospitals and even a lot of churches that have sort of lost their moorings. Um, Peter Greer's book, uh, Mission Drift, right? Kind of how do we get off track from the original focus uh, happens. So atrophy is very, very much the world's problem, right? Things atrophy over time without attention. You know, I've chosen, chosen to give some to my university. I haven't given a ton, 
partly because I, again, I feel like there's so many people who can support that. And maybe I can support things that are less visible back to that entrepreneurial bent. I can, I can see emerging ministry opportunities or emerging things that maybe others don't have access to give to because they're not known yet, things like that. Um, so that's been a little more of my focus. I couldn't agree with you more though about being, again, we're back to your question about diligence and understanding the nature of the things you choose to give to. Uh, you can also probably over stress that point at times. I mean, at times, I, I did, at any given school today, I bet you could find somebody who felt like they were a bit off track and a bunch of others that were still on track, unfortunately, right? That's sort of the, we're in a, we're in a battlefield all over the place. Christian schools are no different in that way. I think it, I think as a as a person who has resources to steward, I'll keep trying to use that language to remind myself. Um, I feel like yeah, I need to be as diligent as I can. But I, again, to your point and Cuban's point, good for Cuban. You know, I, I should spend some of my time being diligent. I should probably rely on those I trust who have the time and energy to do far more diligence than I do to help vet some things um, and make sure they are still you know kind of a, a, according to the beliefs that I think are biblically grounded. What do you think, McNulty? Our, our producer uh, went to Pepperdine. He's uh, James Dobson's producer as well. What do you yeah. think, Brian? I, I'll, I'll tell you what. I, I think that the way it goes today in these schools, it's really in the hands of the individual teachers, the professors. So these Christian colleges need to vet their teachers and watch them closer. I think millennials and then beyond that, Gen Z, and beyond that, whatever you want to call this next group that's coming up, it's like bands on a tree, you know, if you ever cut you know, and you look at the history of a redwood, it's like we're getting farther and farther away from Christ. And I just I don't think that it's as simple as saying they're soft or they're entitled. That's the word. Right. In, entitled. But it's it's kind of a malaise. That's all of that. I, I, I think that there is some entitlement going on and just they don't know what they don't know. They haven't lived. I mean, I kind of remember Things like, I certainly remember 9-11 and the towers going down. I remember uh, Desert Storm 1, Desert Storm 2. I remember the gas crisis. I remember the, our troops coming home from Vietnam. You know, I, I think You remember that, that? You have a good memory. Yeah. That was, that was just for television, that last one, I'm sure. I don't yeah. remember that. Yeah. I was three, but I, re I, remember, I remember the guys coming home. Yep. Remember them dumping... The Huey off the yeah, side of the uh, aircraft carrier. Yeah. Our country's been wounded many times. And uh, people need to realize how lucky they are to have it here. We have more freedom, more, more opportunity than any other country on earth. So, so I get upset at these Christian colleges. I get upset at the students and the teachers mainly. You know, we at Waterstone, I won't mention the name of the college, but I had a good friend of mine. Uh, he may not want to be mentioned, but he was... People would know his name. He was speaking in their chapel, and he mentioned, not as a part of his message, just mentioned marriage is obviously between a man and a woman. And he said half the student body got up and walked out. This is a, a trusted Christian school. He got a call from the provost a month later saying, you're not welcome to ever come back to this school again. Now, Waterstone, about six months later, one of their alum wanted to give $7 million through Waterstone to that school to start a department on evolution in their science department. And that school agreed to take it. And we were able to step in and broker a deal where that money didn't get to that school. And so I won't mention that school. Maybe one of these days I will. You, I'll tell you guys off air. But that you know, this is a school that lots of alum are giving lots of money to who wanted to teach evolution because there was enough money in it and who kicked off, out one of the most respected Bible teachers in our country because he said marriage between a man and a woman. I, I'd ask, why would I want to send my kid to that school? I can send my kid to the University of Colorado and get that kind of crap taught to him. Right. Mm -hmm. It's hard. I think we're living in a very, a very difficult time in our culture, right? I think that we've, we've quoted verses like salt and light and things like that for years. And I think we're living in a time where it's, it's not going to be culturally convenient to be Christian much longer. And, um, and I think so you're going to have to decide you know, if if you say I I adhere to Christ's teaching, I'm a Christ follower. It kind of the, seems to be the newest language uh, that, that kind of says I'm not just culturally Christian. <laughs> right. um, and uh, matter of fact, I, I love this. You know, with the whole identification uh, thing in our culture, uh, if you want to avoid being persecuted, uh, you can say I identify as a Christian. So then nobody can persecute you because you just identified. Oh, I see. see, then it's okay. So identify. Um, just uh, you're mm. welcome uh, for that helpful tip. Um, so <laughs> I think at the at this in this. Realm, 
realm can, I mean, look, I run a secular company with a lot of wonderful people who don't share some of these beliefs. And I love them. I respect them. I'm happy they're in my company and can't uh, thrust my belief system on people because I happen to run the company. It, you know, on the other hand, I don't have to back off of my belief system in my personal life and and to hold people accountable that are in my life that claim to be Christ followers. So it's a tension we're all living with. Um, one of my good buddies, I quotes Andy Stanley on this, I think, right? One of, the, one of the wisdoms you learn in life is differentiating between problems that can be solved and tensions which just have to be managed, right? There's not a problem to be solved in a lot of these areas. There's a tension to be managed in our culture. Like how do you live in a way that is Christ honoring and yet is recognizing that there are people that you love and respect who may have very differing views from you? And can we be gracious? You know, I was like to say, pay attention to the New Testament. Jesus really only yelled at one group of people. He just yelled at the Pharisees. So don't be a Pharisee. That's the punchline. But I think at the end of the day, there really is a sense of in the church, part of our lack of saltiness in the culture is we don't do that. We start yelling at the sinners. Jesus didn't do that. Mm -hmm. We don't yell at the hypocrites, which he did a lot of. So I'd love to see us be a little more tough on the hypocrites in our Christian subculture. And then maybe those outside our Christian subculture would go, well, now you seem to be taking the teachings of the founder a bit more seriously. That would be a great a great step forward, I would hope. Yeah. As, as I always say, Jesus was a great lover of the repentant. You know, not, not so tolerant of the unrepentant. Right. Right. So tell us how you became so successful. I know a lot of people listening to this going, you know, how do you get to those stories where you, you didn't come from uh, privilege? No. You didn't come from a dad who was well-connected, who got you into the right school and the right connections. No. How, how do you get from Downey? Downey, California. My dad was a social worker and my mom was a teacher. Two incredibly lucrative positions, yes. as you know. Um, so uh, I think I made more my second year at IBM than my parents made. Yeah, I, I can't explain it. <laughs> is the short answer. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I feel like um, that stewardship mindship, uh, mindset, I feel like I was gifted with that, not just about money because I didn't have any back then, but just kind of I've got some gifts and talents that I should I should pursue them. I think like a lot of folks uh, that that ended up in business um, as a Christian young person, I wrestled a little bit with going into quote full time ministry. I think there's still that uh, we all use the term still I think sacred secular divide challenge, right? Like oh if I'm really serious I should go into full time pastoring or preaching or ministry. And um, thankfully I had some really good counsel to not do that. A I think I would have been a lousy pastor, but B um, I think far more of us are called to be out in amongst the world, doing whatever God's called us to do, um, and and doing it with with a faith filled you know God honoring mindset. For a lot of us, that means being business people and teachers and accountants and lawyers and all that stuff. And in my case, I felt like I was called to business. Um, I had some early success, but not roaring success. Interestingly, I like to say I was the uh, you know forty seven year old overnight success uh, when we sold our first company. It took a bit of, of of journeying, and then yeah, the last the last part of the journey here at this company, SailPoint, went from being kind of a you know looked like a promising young tech startup, got some funding, did all that kind of thing that you do in the tech world. And all of a sudden kind of started to get bigger and took some private equity money. And that went better than everybody expected. Then we went public and that's gone better than everybody expected in some ways. And so now we got, we're, uh, we're sitting on a pretty good sized market cap and about, uh, I guess, 1,400 employees around the world or something. And it, I wouldn't have thought we wouldn't have got a tenth of this before something else would have happened. I just didn't see this story unfolding this way. So I think it's because of that mindset that I just sort of said, well, I'll just kind of steward what's happening as it's happening. Um, what you know, People often talk about life verses and stuff. I don't know if this is my life verse. I just quote it a lot. Um, the, the, the phase in the Psalms where David says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The implication of that is so powerful for me. Like, I feel like we all want big searchlights that shine way down the road to tell us where we're going. And God says, hey, I'm going to give enough light to see this step and maybe one more step. That's a light at your feet, right? And I think that's that's sort of what it looks like to me to walk by faith in my business life. Like, I'm just going to take the next step that I see makes sense, you know, praying through issues and and talking to godly counselors and then t trusting my amazingly talented team around me and like, let's do the next thing. Oh, that worked. Let's do the next thing. Oh, that worked well too. Um, you know, I think, think that I, I've never been in the oil business, but the idea of 30 to 50 year long range planning, nobody in tech thinks like that, at least very few, right. perhaps. Um, you just kind of like, I think that's that success in our case has come from just trusting our team, building a great team, 
living and, and operating with integrity and then making good strategic choices and then executing. It's, it's not rocket science in that sense, but I think because we treat people right, that's, that's sort of what's core to how I think about leading. If you treat people right, then a lot of other things tend to take care of themselves in business. I mean, I'm going to put you on a spot now. Uh -oh. so, so when people hear, and, and this is what successful people say all the time, God just blessed me so much. Well, what that means is for all the people who don't have money are going, well, God, is God not blessing me? I mean, why did God bless you? What? And, and I know this, this this causes you to have to talk about yourself a little bit, maybe more than you're comfortable with. But there's a reason why God chose to bless you with a lot of money. And all those guys out there that are busting or can that are not, can, can you unpack that a little bit? Boy, um, it's hard because I think we can't see behind the curtain, right? We just can't. I, I love the concept of, of our view of life as a backside of a tapestry. You know, I'm so not a Renaissance scholar, but like that idea of a <laughs> backside of a tapestry looks like a bunch of crazy random thread. Then you walk around the front like, oh, it's a beautiful picture of a garden. Um, but we see the, the random thread stuff. Like I can't explain why some godly business people I know have not done as well. And frankly, and you and I know a lot of very ungodly business people have done phenomenally well. That's what busted about the prosperity gospel. There's just not a correlation between godliness and worldly success Amen. that you can point to. But yet there's these principles, right? God differentiates proverbs from promises. There's a whole lot of proverbs about how to live according to his design. And that tends to have good results in general. That's the point of a proverb, right? Um, and I feel like I've tried to live um, in such a way that I honored God with what I was doing, that I valued the people around me, that I've been faithful and generous uh, with what I've been given. And, and so in my life, that pro proverb and principle of, okay, so here's some more to steward then. I'm like, okay, I guess I better keep stewarding that. And maybe there'll be more. And Marge and I have talks all the time about well, what if it all just went away? And I'm like, I think we'd be fine. <laughs> you know, I really don't think I'm attached to this stuff. I, um, I don't hold it tightly. Um, you know, I, I, I just as soon have a burger as a fancy steak. And honestly, I like a fancy steak, but I like a burger. So it's like, I, I don't feel like we're, we're told uh, where you started, Ken. I don't think we're told to run away from wealth. So much of the church teaching can be like run away from wealth. It's like, there's all these things I didn't get taught as a young person. Like when the church was meeting in some people's homes in the early days, they had to have pretty big homes. They had to have some money. They had a big enough home for the church to meet in their home. Like, hey, how come Jesus didn't tell them to give away all their money? Well, they wouldn't have had a big home to meet in, right? There's just sort of some things that don't get taught a lot. <laughs> like, wait a minute, some of those people that had wealth weren't told to give it all away. People love to point to that parable where he tells the one rich young ruler, this is between you and me, you and your acceptance of God, you need to give it away. He didn't say that to every rich person ever, but people generalize that, right? And, and so I feel like in my case of success, it's just been, I think I'm trying to be faithful with what God gives me as it comes. And if it gets taken away again, I've got to have the Job mindset of, you know, God gives, God takes away, uh, God's blessed. <laughs> you know, that's that's got to be my attitude all the time. I'm glad you brought that up because I'm going to give a half an hour sermon in 30 seconds on the rich young ruler because I think it's one of the most misunderstood passages of Scripture ever. The rich young ruler is a follower of Christ, right? He comes to Christ and says, I followed you. I want to do this. And when Jesus tells him, you know, here's what you need to do. He's saying, I want to go to that next level. I want to be a disciple. I want to be something special. And he keeps pushing Jesus. And what he's doing is negotiating. I want the magical answer that I can live by forever. And Jesus goes, okay, I'll give you one you can't, you can't do. Because yeah. we need to get a hold of your heart. It's the same as the the parable about the workers. It was always used to confuse me when I was younger. You have <laughs> same you same know, wage for unequal work. Right. So he goes out at six in the morning. He gets some workers. It says what they negotiated a pay with him, and then they came. And then throughout the rest of the day, he keeps grabbing more people, and they all just follow him. They don't they don't do anything. And at the end, he calls the people who came last only worked one hour, yeah, pays them what the, he negotiated with the first ones. And it gets all the way back to the first guys. Well, we must be getting more. No. And actually, when they complain, his, his words in the Greek are something akin to get lost. <laughs> well, what's the, what's the point of that? They dared to negotiate with the master. They said, I want the magic plan, and then I'll keep the magic rules and the magic plan. And, and Jesus' message in both of those is, in fact, the one comes after. He uses the workers to explain the rich young ruler to the mm. disciples. You don't negotiate with God. Mm -hmm. You give your all to him, just like you're saying. It's not how much money do I give. It's how much do I get to keep. Mm -hmm. 
all is his. If I want to sit there and negotiate religion and have my little rules, it's like the rich young older. He says, get lost. Mm. I don't have time for such. Well, the other part of that story, I think, and and back to, you know, the love of money and money are not the root of all evil. I think pride is ultimately the root of almost all sin, almost all uh, mis- misconstruing. C.S. Lewis says that, so you're in good company. Yes, I think, I think he got it from me, pretty <laughs> yeah, sure. I think so. Uh, not. Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. And now, back to today's show. Hey, so we're talking to Mark McLean, a uh, very successful entrepreneur in especially the tech field, talking about Christians who have money, being generous, being wise in their generosity, and then basically just asking Mark, how do you how do you come from a lower middle class background to rising to the top of the CEO of a global company? And uh, so, I mean, fourteen hundred employees. How many countries? Um, I think like thirty now, something like that. And you're, you're a tech business, so excuse my stereotyping, but I'm sure a lot of those are in India. Uh, we have a decent chunk in India, a small chunk in Tel Aviv, Israel, and uh, small teams of kind of field people all over Europe and Asia. So where all the greatest education is, Israel, India, um, brilliant all the tech, people. brilliant people. How do you live out your faith? I mean, you, so you got employees of every faith. Do you have employees in California? <laughs> yeah, which is the, uh, the most interesting collection of faith uh, anywhere. When, yeah. when I was in uh, running Collier's Valuation, we had, th- throughout Collier's, we were in 63 countries. And we had an HR division for the world and then one for California. I kid you not. We had a whole separate section just for California. So how do you live out your faith as, as a Christian, especially in the tech world, man? You you got worldviews and craziness going on. And how do you do that? Well, um, I, I have some good models. You may know Pat Gelsinger. He's the CEO now of VMware, one of the most outspoken Christian guys. And VMware, a very secular, very successful business. you know. And I think what it looks like for us is you say us, but myself in the same category, Pat, is not fair at all. But um, for people like us, there, I can say that, is, is you know... When I talk you, about basketball, it's, you know, me and Michael Jordan, yeah, guys like us. Guys like us, similar in <laughs> that we're baskets. both male and human. <laughs> um, there's a sense of, okay, I, I had to get over, like, feeling like I couldn't talk about who I was, but I also know I can't thrust it on people is often the word I use, right? Because that that's not only illegal in our country, but it's also unwise, I think. I think, you know, we've all seen that, like, shoving the gospel down anyone's throat has a very bad track record of success, right? I think the idea is to live an attractive life, and as Paul says, and be prepared to, to defend the gospel at all times. And I think if you live a life that's that's God-honoring and, and truly looks like looks like God calls us to live most of the time, as best we can do most of the time, not all the time, then that will cause people to say, wow, that's kind of different. <laughs> what, why is it that you're different? What is it about you? So I feel like it, what it looks like day to day is, well, I have, I have direct reports. I have people that report to me, other people that report to people that report to me that I interact with. I feel like my job is to love them. <laughs> You know, what does that look like? Well, that means treat them with respect and honor and care and serve them. And, you know, that's what Jesus did around people that he was in contact with. Sometimes he ended up sharing deeply about faith. Sometimes he probably just moved on and went to the next town. I, I think all we all we can do is sort of be 
living the way we're called to live by God and treating people with respect and honor, and then when possible, you know, sharing the the reason behind that of our faith. Um, but no, I don't. I don't choose to like thrust that on people. I do. I have tons of Hindu employees in India. I have tons of, of uh, Israeli employees in that Tel Aviv. I love all of them. They're fantastic people. Tons of Buddhists in California. I have. All, <laughs> I have people in California that I don't know what they believe sometimes. And by the way, as we joked earlier, Austin is sort of a piece of California. It is stuck yes. in Texas. So and look and, and I. I love all those folks who may or may not share my views because there's a whole lot of reasons they may not share my views. They may have never been exposed to what I consider to be the truth. They may have been exposed to it and had a very bad experience. We've all heard all those stories, right? And I think sometimes it's just, I like when I hear things like, gosh, I've met other Christians, but they weren't like you. That's always a great one. (laughs) Sad, but sad, but true, right? And so I think there's that sense of trying to fight that stereotype on television or wherever they might have it of Christians are all screaming anti-abortion crazy people as opposed to, oh, I, I'm, I'm not at all in favor of abortion, but I'm not the person who's screaming and yelling at some teenager, right? That's not going to accomplish God's purpose in that girl's life from what I can gather. And so I think there's this call to live uh, an attractive, winsome life, to be firm in our faith, and and yet to be careful to not play the role of judge. Somebody once said, you know, we use the term witness uh, kind of flippantly as Christians sometimes. And, and and when someone's kind of challenging us or thinking about our faith, I heard this in a podcast recently, I thought it was really good. You know, we tend to think I've got to defend myself. So I'm I'm on trial, I'm I'm on defense. And and they said really when someone's challenging faith like that, they're actually putting God or Jesus on trial and I'm a I'm like a character witness called to give a character reference to him. I'm not the one on trial. Right. And so I'm just supposed to say, here's how I would defend him because I believe him. I'm, I'm a character witness for him, so to speak. I'm like, wow, that is a really helpful metaphor because I think quite often we feel like we're being attacked in our culture all the time. We're not being attacked. God's being attacked. And, and I think our job is to say, I, I have a relationship with God. The way you're attacking God, you don't understand God the way I do. He's not the way you're portraying him. Um, and I feel like that's my job is to be that kind of a witness, not the I got to defend myself and my views because you're attacking me. That's a great point. I think it was John Wesley who said, share the gospel every day and when necessary, use words. I've heard that one attributed to him. I've heard it attributed to Augustine. I don't know. Whichever said it, there's truth in it. I've also heard an interesting counterbalance. I don't know if you've heard this, um, which is sometimes, and I would say a lot of business people might have been guilty of this, we gave ourselves an excuse to never share the words. Yeah. Right? right? Like, I'm just going to keep living an upright, ethical, moral life, and hopefully people will figure out I'm a Christian uh, or that that's what that's all about. And I'm like, you know, there's some truth in Matter of fact, somebody, this is a great observation. They said the problem with that is if somebody is just observing that, what they might draw from that is, oh, I get it. It's about living by the rules. They'll never pick up the concept of grace. It's karma. Right. It's like you're just getting yeah, back to why are you successful? Because I've done good things. So I'm, it's all coming back to me. It's like, no, that's not the theology. <laughs> um, and so I think that idea of saying, look, the reason to occasionally use words is to explain that the gospel isn't about living a more sanctified, pure life, it's about grace and then living that way in response to grace, not to earn God's favor, right? And and people won't necessarily pick that up without the words. Grace is not an intuitive concept. Now, I got sued for being a Christian uh, when I was a CEO. I had an employee who, uh, he, I, I walked into a conference room in New York City and found him sitting there bawling. And so he was a high up executive and uh, asked him what was wrong. And his son had run away and his wife had screamed at him. He was a terrible father and husband. and. He said to me, I don't, you know, your family is you're so tight and your kids are so good. And, you know, why do you have it all together? And I said, well, if I'm going to tell you that I am, I'm going to have to tell you about Christ, I have your permission to tell you about Christ, I should have him sign something. So I did. I witnessed him for half an hour. And that was that until a year later when he left to go get another job and then turned around and sued me for being a Christian and said I'd witnessed to him. and Against his will. Or we won the lawsuit. It cost us 300 grand, yeah. you know, and we had to hire a private investigator to, to – interview, you know, a bunch of our employees and say, did you feel pressured? Well, you know, so it's, it was interesting because I actually got a firsthand look 
the, the, the employees didn't know I was being sued. They just knew that this private investigator was asking them the questions. But I got to get all these, well, what did they think of my faith and mm. me as a Christian? So it was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, it was $300,000 for that little report. Sure. sure. But, <laughs> <laughs> they did say he's very clear about his faith. We all know he's a Christian. He talks about Jesus all the time, but we've never felt pressured. So the lawsuit was thrown out because there was clearly no pressure. And fortunately for me, one of my top executives was somebody I had recruited out of school and, and was a Muslim. And mm. so they were like, I didn't do it because he was a Muslim. I did it because he was a great employee. But uh, so we're, you know, as we begin to kind of wrap up, we're talking about the fact of, of your faith being responsible, not pushing people. But at what point is there a social responsibility on Christians mm. to stop the pushing? When, we, when you and I first started running companies, we used to have Christmas parties. You know, now we don't have Christmas parties. At what point do we stop and say this far and no more socially? From mm. from a business perspective, do we keep backing up or do we go, no, 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 no. In this company, we have Christmas parties. And if you don't like it, go work somewhere else. I mean, where's the balance? It's a great question. Um, we have holiday parties, so I'm probably on your bad list. <laughs> um, well, you're in Austin. I I'm in Austin. Well, And, and, I, and again, I, everybody's got their own lens on these things. I have the lens of I want to honor the people who might be celebrating a different holiday at that time of year, like Hanukkah, like, you know, something else. And I don't, but, you know, that's that's Well, one you're of, a mean, bad guy. I know. And that's why you I should got be, sued. What, what, yeah, you should be sued the way you were. No, I, I think at the end of the day, I want the Christians to feel like, oh, we're going to celebrate Christmas at this time of year, but I don't want people to feel like... One of the th challenges for Christians in leadership is not to create an us and them culture inside a secular organization, right? If you're in a Christian organization, there is no us and them because everybody came to the organization believing they're part of this. As a Christian leader of a secular organization, and there's a lot of us, right? There are Christians who lead Christian organizations, which that's where God, it's like calling to a pastor, like you should do that. I'm sort of like, uh, like I think in some ways a pastor of a, of a seed church, planting church, where you're going into a neighborhood or something where you know you're going to get a lot of seekers, people aren't necessarily uh, interested in the faith thing, but they're kind of intrigued by what's going on, so they'll show up. I think that's kind of what we have at work sometimes is people are like attracted to the organization, the success we're having, whatever is happening. They didn't come because I'm a Christian, I don't think, very many of them, maybe a few by now, but, but, but they're intrigued by the success. Then like your story, uh, they, see, they see me living out my life in a way that I'm not ashamed to say that I'm a Christian in any way, but I don't want them to ever feel like I'm thrusting it on them in my company. Right. You kind of went to the social fabric, which is a little different question. Um, you know, I think as, as believers living in a democratic society, we're called to use the influence and authority we have to use our votes, to use our influence, to try to affect the culture. I'm probably less the Christian culture defendant than some people are. And here's why. I think because I have traveled the world a fair amount, I'm pretty hesitant to get in, in a very, very negative viewpoint on what's happening in America when I think about, well, what's it like to be a Christian in China today or in parts of Africa today? If, if they heard Christians in America saying, how can we possibly succeed without the air cover of our government? I think they'd laugh. Like, what are you talking about? I've never had the air cover of my government. Now, I would like to keep this country where it's been, at least in the sense of religious honor and freedom, right? I love what the guys like ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, and others are doing to try to protect our rights that we've had in this country. I just feel like I, I my mission is to try to show the love of God. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven first. I'm a citizen of America second. And and the, I, wanna, I want people to understand that is my first priority. Then I want to do everything I can to influence for positive in positive ways this culture, this country, because it's where I live. I, I do want to defend our rights. I, I love that there are people who say, you can't pick on Christians because they're Christian. That's not okay in our country. So we should defend that, right? But we shouldn't make anyone who doesn't choose to be Christian feel like they're not welcome in our country. And we never really have. There are those who would almost drive us there. And I'm like, hey, that's not that's not Christian, much less American, <laughs> to say, you can only be in our club if you're already in our club. How does that work exactly? Running a company is, is I think it's Billy Graham's quote, but there's been others like it. You know, the next great movement of God was going to be in the marketplace was a famous, I think, Billy Graham quote from a long time ago. Because why is that true? Because 
We don't invite people to church much anymore, right? But we get to work with them a lot. And if we develop a relationship with them and they see our winsome, quote, faith at work, they might come to church with us. But if we just first go to them and we don't know them and we ask them to church, good luck. They they might come with you, but I kind of doubt it, right? So I feel like in some ways the hands and feet of the church today are present very real in real ways in the marketplace and then, yeah, let's draw them toward God. And then if, if they're attracted, then sure, let's bring them with us to church to hear more truth than they'll probably get exposed to at work. But but back to your gospel without words, the first truth they're going to see is going to be their Christian colleagues at work. And if they see a poor representation there, I doubt they're going to be interested in exploring further. Yeah. And, and the other thing I don't like about that statement is what it encourages is so much of what we see you know, the old uh, people are watching your life all the time. So it encourages legalism and, and hypocrisy. You know, it's the guy with the porn problem that's trying to pretend like it's all okay. Man, that stuff's all going to come out eventually. Absolutely. I remember witnessing to a wealthy, a billionaire client of ours, because, you know, at, at, at Collier's, obviously, a lot of New York Jews, you know, in real estate there. Mm-hmm. So I was witnessing to one of the Jewish guys there, and he was asking me a lot of really intelligent questions and ultimately said, you know, I, I'll just be a good person. And if Jesus you know, exists, then, you know, I'll just have to deal with it at a time. I said, well, that'll be too late. What do you mean? I said, well, the Bible says that if you reject Christ, I'm telling you about Christ now, you're going to go to hell. Did you just say that to me? I said, <laughs> yeah, you just told me I was going to go to hell. I said, well, I'm telling you, you don't have to. And so after that, every time I'd see him, he'd go, hey, guys, come on. This is Ken Harris. He told, he's the guy who told me I was going to go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> you established a brand. I don't know yes, if sorry, right, brand. This is why I now run two Christian organizations. <laughs> <laughs> You are effective in your evangelism, very direct. Yes. Yeah, look, I think it's a hard thing to to never back off of the truth, but but not to be the the obnoxious and you weren't the because you developed a relationship well, I, with this I, guy. I might have been. You might have, but you yeah. developed a relationship no, with the guy. We were, yeah, right? we were friends, like so right? I, I think that that's. I feel like you you sort of see for the most part there are exceptions, but for the most part in the Bible, people developing relationships and then speaking the gospel to people. And I feel like if we could get focused on that, then let all those Christians that are supposed to be salt and light out in the marketplace, in the schools, in the community, be that, and then develop those relationships. Yeah, it's important on that story. Actually, before I ever witnessed to him, he had said to me, he had invited me in and said to me, you know, you're the most unjudgmental person I've ever met. He was having an affair and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And he said, I talk to you and I don't see any judgment on your face. So mm-hmm. there was a relationship yeah. there and credibility. So to yep. caution people. Yeah. All right. So as we, ra- as we wrap this up, is there any last thing? By the way, where, where do people get your book? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I have this book. Uh, obviously, I'm really focused on pushing the book, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> yeah, need, it's on you Amazon. If so, you search on Mark McLean on Amazon, it's the only one you'll find. So it's not hard if you can figure out my name. Yeah, the book's called Joy and Success at Work, Building Organizations That Don't Suck the Life Out of People. Did, did they name the character on, uh, what was that movie with Bruce Willis? Die Hard. Die Hard. No, that's my brother. My brother's name is John. So John McLean, he, he gets that all the time, as you can imagine. He looks nothing like Bruce. Uh, but... Uh, no, I think at the end of the day, I decided to capture some thoughts that I felt like people were, they'd say, gosh, this is interesting how you talk about these things and you think. And honestly, I try to set people's expectations. 80% of the book is me channeling a lot of really great things I've heard over life. You and I have joked about how an editor is going to fix up our conversation at the end of this. I feel like I'm a pretty good editor in life. Like I've heard a lot of great things over time and I've kind of sifted to the ones I think are the most useful. Those are the best books meaningful. though. Yeah, it's 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 a very uh, easily digestible set of things to think about and everything from how do you spend your time, how do you lead teams. Yeah, if I could leave people with something, because you and I are kind of leaders, we've talked about, you know, what is it like to be a leader? And a lot of the people, like you said, they may aspire to be successful. That usually translates to being some kind of a leader, right? I think the best metaphor for leadership, and I can't claim to have direct experience here because I played uh, – some band instruments, but never orchestra, is a conductor. I love the metaphor of a conductor. Um, Why is that a cool metaphor as a leader? Well, one thought is you no longer have an instrument. (laughs) You have a stick, (laughs) a little stick they call a baton, and yet you are tasked with bringing great music to the audience. So you've had to give up your uh, functional expertise, we would say, in business. Maybe you used to be a great violinist or cellist or drum timpani player, there's a fancy orchestra instrument, um, and say, look, I'm just going to conduct. So you have to decide what sheet of music you're on. 
the tempo, when it's time for more of this section and less of that, but you don't play an instrument. And if you, if you lead by like when, when the, when, when you're in rehearsal and you grab the violin from the lead uh, first chair and say, give me that, let me show you how to play that. That guy's not going to want to be in your orchestra very long. Right. Mm -hmm. So as a leader, you have to trust your team to do what they're called to do. You have to decide the tempo and the strategy. That's the strategy. The piece of music is the strategy. The tempo is the execution, I think. And then the last part of the analogy I think is so great is you do it all with your back to the audience, right? You are focused on the musicians, i.e. your team, and getting them to perform at their peak. And if you do that well, you will get, and they will get the applause, but you won't be focused on that. You're focused on them. I think that kind of summarizes servant leadership in a lot of ways. I think it's just the best metaphor for leadership. So that's another one of those great stories I just repeated in the book. I didn't create it, but um, I just think it's a great way to think about leading. That's good stuff. And a great way to finish this out, man. So, right. hey, if you guys go on and get Mark's book on Amazon, leave a review, give it five stars. Those, those things are important. If it blessed you, bless others by, you know, as they go looking for books on Christian leadership, going, okay, this one's a good one. So that's great. Thanks, Mark. Well, thanks, Ken. It's really fun chatting with you. I hope this is helpful to your listeners. You, your mom, and your sister. All three of them. <laughs> thanks for listening to On the Edge Podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison.